Good morning. It's so good to have each and every one of you with us. It's good to have our visitors here with us this morning. Uh, I invite you all to take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Mark. We'll be reading in there in just a moment, Mark chapter 12, picking up where we left off on Sunday. And for those of you who are not able to be with us on Sunday, what we were looking at is the, the, this, this teaching that Jesus is giving. In fact, this is him, some of His last teaching that He's going to give uh, publicly in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and He is experiencing a, an attack by the religious leaders of that day trying to trap Him. And over and over again, He has come through these situations and been able to not only withstand their attempts to attack and trap Him, but to turn this back on them to cause the people around to question and wonder about their motives. The Pharisees come and bring to Him this idea of, of taxation and who do we give to. The Sadducees try to trap Him in this very difficult and convoluted message of, of marriage and, and who is uh, this woman going to belong to in the afterlife and the resurrection which they did not believe in. The scribe comes and asks him about the greatest commandment. And in all of this, we see Jesus uh, taking this in stride. He's, he's not caught off guard by anything that they're trying to do, even though they're trying to trap him. He's, he is certainly not caught off guard by this. And in fact, what he does is he sets up a, a teaching that is going to not only be wildly um, accepted by some of those that are in uh, listening to him. The, the crowds are going to be pleased with some of the things that he says, but he's laying down a foundation for how we are to walk and how we are to live even some 2,000 years later. And so the question that I want us to be thinking about as we go through this material, as we read these sections of scripture this morning, is the life that I live. Am I living it just to be seen by men from this world? Am I living it to have the attention of those in the world and, and have that attention upon me? Because Jesus is really going to be calling that into question as we go through here. He's made it clear in this past section. You religious leaders, these Pharisees, scribes, the Sadducees, you guys have rejected me because you are hypocrites. You have rejected me because you don't know the Scriptures. You're not intimately connected with them. You don't know the power from God. You've been disconnected from Him. And you're not giving Him what He is owed. You're not giving Him your life. And now He's made this point specifically to the Sadducees when they asked that question about, well, who's, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They said, aren't you not mistaken? Jesus says, aren't you not mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures, you don't know the power of God. Now I want you to pick up with me in verse 35. Because he's going to say something very interesting there. Uh, presumably, I would think, still within earshot of these Sadducees. Verse 35-37 through says, Then Jesus answered and said while He taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said, By the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstools. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now your translations might say the large crowd or the, the multitude heard him gladly. It's interesting the question that he's posing here. Uh, in verse 36, as he poses this question, he attributes this inspiration or this, this passage to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you remember from Sunday, the Sadducees do not believe that. 
The Sadducees hold to the Torah. They hold to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as infallible. This is the inspirated, uh, inspirational Word of God, inspired Word of God. God has given us this Word. We can hold this to be true. But, but all of this other stuff that you, you Jewish teachers hold to, specifically the Pharisees who held to the Talmud, held to the oral traditions of the elders and the rabbis, they said anything outside of those first five books cannot be inspired. And maybe that, that, that certainly would have been true for some of the traditions that they held to. But Jesus here calls into question David and says, think about what David said, attributing that to inspiration of God. That's something the Sadducees would have adamantly denied. Certainly, no, David cannot be inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the, these first five books, yes, but David, no. But I want you to think about this. The Sadducees, while they may have denied that, they certainly understood that there was a prophet that was coming, that was going to be this great Messiah, this Christ. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, something that they certainly would have um, uh, held themselves to very closely, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. <clears throat> the Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. And so they're, they're aware there is this, this Messiah, there is this prophet coming into the world that they need to listen to. And so they, they, have, they obviously are looking for that prophet. They're waiting. And Jesus is referring to him when he says, why do they call the Christ, this prophet that they're all waiting for, why does he call the Christ? Why does David refer to him? Or why do they refer to him as the son of David? Now, if you'll remember, Jesus has just said, you guys don't know your scriptures. I wonder personally, how many of the scribes, how many of the people sitting around said, um, Jesus, you said we don't know our scriptures and you're asking a question like that. Maybe you don't know your scripture. Don't you remember 2 Samuel 7? That's why they call him the son of David. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16, it says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Jesus, that's why. That's why he's referred to as the son of David, because that's prophesied. He's going to be the son of David. That's what we know. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm not talking about that one. I'm not talking about 2 Samuel. I'm talking about what David said in the Psalms when David referred to his son as Lord. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 is the most heavily quoted Old Testament reference in the entire New Testament. It is quoted over and over and over again. It is vitally important to the New Testament authors and to Christ Himself. And He points back to this and He says, guys, what I'm trying to get you to do is think differently about Scripture. 
You guys are not thinking about it the way it was intended to think about it. When he asked the question, why are they calling him? Why does they say Christ will be the son of David? It's not because he's wanting to find them go, all right, I know that one. I know that one. I'll flip over and I'll find 2 Samuel. That's why. He's saying, no, you need to be reading the scriptures not to find the answer to this question. You need to be reading the scriptures to find out just who God is. God is being depicted here in this question when David refers to the Christ as Lord. That's the question he's asking them. Why, if the Christ is to be the son of David, does David humiliate himself by calling him Lord? That's not done. You don't call your son Lord. You have authority over your son. You are greater. The father is greater than the son. The father does not humble himself, humiliate himself in this way. And yet David did. Why? Now, yes, for us, hindsight's 2020. You and I probably have a much better view of this now than they did in that day. The Christ can have greater authority than the father David because he was not just the son of David. He's the son of God. But what he's doing is bringing up that deeper point which says the reason you are rejecting me, the reason that you're not following after me is because you've not read your scriptures so as to actually think about how they apply to you. You've not been reading them to see the implication that it has in your own life. They were to meditate upon these words. They were to read these words and meditate upon them day and night, not just so that they could memorize them, so that they could know who God is. So they could become connected with Him. But rather, what they had done is not learn who God is. They had learned about man's history with this God, Yahweh. And I think we can be guilty of this as well. We read stories about David and Moses and Abraham and Sarah and, and Noah. We read Mo stories about Rahab. We read stories, and they're amazing stories, no doubt about it. There are great pictures of faith in these accounts. In fact, the Hebrew writer in chapter 11 points to all of these people saying, look at all of these faithful people of old. Look to Moses. Look to Abraham. Look to Abel. Look at these faithful people. And then he says at the beginning of chapter 12, because of this great cloud of witness, because of all of these witnesses to God, lay aside the sins, all the things that hold you back, and look to Jesus. It's interesting how the Hebrew writer does that. He says, now, I want you to think about all of these faithful people in the Old Testament. Amazing stories in the Old Testament. I want you to think about them and look to God. Not look to, not look to David. Not look to Moses. Yes, we look at them, but we look through them and see the God that was behind them. When we read about the faith of Abraham, do we read about a story? Or we think of just a story of a guy who left his family and traveled to a new country. Or we do, do we think about the God that stood and strengthened this family and turned it into a great nation. When we think about the book of Nehemiah, do we think about a guy that encouraged people to build a wall? Or do we think about the God that was busy, even without His name being revealed, redeeming and buying back? And, and, and there's a people that are so disconnected from God at this time, and He's still working through them, restoring them from exile, restoring them from captivity. All of these are marvelous examples of faithful people. There's no doubt about that. But behind each and every one of them is a faithful, all-powerful, and all-loving God 
who is busy and working and, and demonstrating over and over again His holiness. He's demonstrating His holiness in His love. His holiness in His wrath. His holiness in His kingdom. And they were missing the picture. And sometimes we miss the picture too. Understanding the Scriptures in a different way, in a new way, which helps us to see the power of the Scriptures, that changes lives. And these people had been guilty of reading the Scriptures and never really understanding them. And now, as we saw, Jesus has the attention of the crowd. It says in the New King James, the common people heard Him gladly. Again, some of your other translations use, maybe use a little different phrase there. But they're listening to Him. They're hearing Him. And when He takes that opportunity, think about the teaching that He gives next regarding who's going to receive greater condemnation. Then He said to them in His teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now what has He just said? He's just said, why do the scribes call the Christ the Son of David? They get that correct. The Christ is the Son of David. He's, look, look at them. Look at, they've got the answer right. Why do they do that? And now he's got everyone's attention because he has pointed out, do you not see that the Christ is going to have greater authority than David? He calls him Lord in Psalm 110. You need to think about your scriptures in such a way as to learn who God is, be connected to him. And now everybody's listening. He says, now, you remember those scribes? Don't be like them. Everyone I imagine sitting here is probably thinking, the scribes, I need to be just like those guys. They got it right. He's the son of David. He, the, the, the Christ and David are connected. I need to be like them. He says, no, you need to be the opposite of them. He says, don't be like the scribes because they're going to receive a greater condemnation. I want you to notice the things that they did that he points out. Every single one of the things that he points out are things that are easily seen by men. The apparel that they wear. Shouts, look at how religious I am. The way that they greet people says, I am more religious than you. In the Jewish tradition, according to the Talmud, if somebody knew the Torah, if they knew the Pentateuch better than you, you were obliged to greet them with an honorary title. Rabbi. Teacher. Master. You were obliged to go to them and, and show them this honor when you talk to them. They wanted everyone to see them for who they were. They wanted everyone to see them doing religious-y type things, like going to the synagogue. They wanted everyone to see them keeping the feast. We'll sit in the best places so everyone can see us. And when they're talking to God, when they should be opening their hearts and revealing their inner, their inner needs and their thanks and their confessions to the, to the God of all creation, they're not even talking to Him. They're talking to anyone who's within earshot they want you to hear how religious I am with how many words I can speak to God. And all the while, all the while, Jesus says they're destroying the most vulnerable people around them. People like the widows. And He says they devour the widows' houses. This was a people that had no help. This was long before the, the women's empowerment movements of today. And, and these women... They needed a man. 
Whenever they died, or whenever their husbands passed away, and they were looking for someone to take care of them, if they were beyond an age where they could remarry, they were at the mercy of their children, or the mercy of anyone who would help them in some benevolent way. They needed help. And what were these scribes doing? It says devouring their houses. I picture that as them going to them and saying, oh, you can't, take, you can't provide for yourself. You can't take care of this house. You can't maybe pay, pay the payments that you need to be able to own this land, whatever it is. I'll just take all that off your hands for you, and you won't have any of that, but you won't have your problems anymore. Whatever it is they were doing, instead of helping these people, Jesus says you're devouring them. You're destroying them. And he says, don't be like that. And certainly, these attitudes are still alive and well today. We still need the warning not to be like the scribes. Almost on a regular basis, when people find out that I preach, I'm referred to as pastor. Oh, pastor, how are you? I, I didn't know you were a pastor in that little church down there. I usually try to, to help them to understand Oftentimes it goes in one ear and out the other, but I usually try to help them to understand I can't be a pastor. First of all, there needs to be a plurality of pastors. And second of all, according to scriptures, I doubt whether I'm qualified to serve as a pastor. And they say, oh, okay, I get it. Sometimes they'll get it. They say, okay, well, you're the evangelist, preacher man. You're the minister. And while those, those are true, I still, as you all have known me for the last four and a half years, just rather just be, go by the name of Kyle. I'm just Kyle Blevins. I'm just working in the kingdom, and that's all I want to be. I don't want any other honorary titles. But that's not what a majority of our, of our culture desires. We want something that glorifies us in some way, something that sets us apart from others. And that's true in many other ways, not just in a, in a title that we receive. What about the way that we look? We like to look righteous more than sometimes actually be righteous. I heard a joke just, just a week ago or so. A guy said that, um, he said this, this guy was praying to God and he's opening a business. He, I think he was going to be a plumber. He's opening his business and he's creating business cards. And he says in his prayer, he, go, he kneels down before God and says, God, I'm, I'm really torn. Should I, should I put a cross on my business card or a little fish on my business card to let people know that I'm a Christian? The joke goes, God responded back, why don't you leave them both off and see if people can still tell? Do we like to look religious rather than act religious? You know, we're going to leave here in a minute and go to lunch and people look at us and they're all dressed up for services. Does it feel good for people to think, hey, that, that person right there, they've probably been in church today. Look at them. They've been in church today. They've been doing churchy sort of things today. Who are we glorifying? Are we glorifying ourselves? Or are we glorifying others? Are we glorifying God? Now I'm not saying, I'm not saying that if someone refers to you in some honorary title, that you have somehow become a sinner. I'm not saying that if you dress up for church services, you have become a sinner. I want you to be seen by the world as different. God wants you to be seen by the world as different. He calls us, in, in, in Peter's epistles, we're told that we are to be a, a strange people. We are to be different from this world. We are to stand out. If we just blend in with everything else, with all the wickedness and all the hate and everything that's happening in this world around us, we're in sin. 
We need to stand down. I'm not saying that if your prayers are long and wordy that you're in sin. You know, next Sunday we're going to have a prayer service. And if it takes us four hours to get through the prayers of that prayer service, amen. Let it be. We'll be here for four hours and we'll open our hearts and we'll pour them out to God. These, all of the things that I'm talking about, they happen today, but they happen whenever we have a performing heart that says, I want to be seen by the world and I want the glory. I want to be seen by the world and I want them to see me and, and, and to lift me up. You see, that's what Jesus is warning about. Having the heart of the religious leaders of that day that's a heart that many still have. We don't do these things for the show. We don't do these things. We don't get dressed up and we don't say prayers and we don't, we don't try to be seated in front of other people and, and, and be seen by other people so that they can look at us and praise us. That's the heart that they had. We need to have a heart that says, I will serve God because I've studied His Word, because I've seen the power that He gives to, to people in, His, in Scripture. I've felt the power in my own life. And I know that He's worth me serving Him. Instead of having a heart that performs for others to see, have a heart that serves because Christ was a servant. And we're striving to be like Him. And all of that being said gets us to the context of the very next section that I believe is so oftentimes taken out of context. And that's this widow's two mites. Preachers love to pluck these verses out and just set them over here. I say, all right, we're going to talk about the widow's two mites today, and we're not going to talk anything about what happened before. Let's read that together, and let's keep it in context of what Jesus has just got through saying. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make up a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. How many times have you heard this section preached solely, just ripped out of context? We're going to sit this over here and it's all about giving. How many times have you heard the preacher get up and say, all right, guys, we've got problems that need to be addressed. We've got an air conditioner that needs to be fixed. We've got a roof that's leaking. We've got things that are going on. And so we're going to talk about that widow's two mites because you all should be ashamed of your giving when you've got this woman that gave everything. Is this section about giving? Of course it is. They're standing in front of the treasury. I'm not saying it's not about giving. They're there watching people give into the treasury of the temple. It's absolutely about giving. But is it about the monetary value of their gift? I don't think so. I don't believe it is. What I want you to think about is what Jesus has just got through saying about the way people think about Scriptures and about the way people think about how other people see them. And then I want you to take yourself back, sitting beside Jesus as He watches the people around given to the treasury. I believe that this woman, this widow, is someone who sees what Jesus is talking about vividly. How many people on that day saw a scribe in beautiful robe come and take heaps of gold and silver out of his riches put all this money in. 
How many people saw that? How many people went up to him and said, man, that's a good giver right there. That right there, that guy, he gets it. He's the one. And people flock to him. I don't know if that happened. I'm just imagining for myself. How many people saw this poor widow go in and toss in what would probably be less than a penny for us? Now, how many people saw that? I can tell you for certain at least one. The only one that matters. Jesus saw it. And Jesus makes a point about it. And says, that right there, that's true service. Whether it be giving, whether it be serving Christ, serving God, whether it be our worship, we need to give to God what is owed. That's where Jesus started all of this back when He was asked about taxation. Give to God what belongs to Him. Not because you want to be seen by others. Not because you want to have uh, a room somewhere named after you. Not because you want to have your memorial go out for people to say, now this guy, they were a real giver. They were a real worshiper. They were a real server. No. You don't do it to be seen by others. You do it to be seen by the God who you've read about in Scripture. You do it to be seen about the God who created everything around us, created man, brought holiness into a world that would long rejected Him through His Son and gave His life so that we could be free from the power of sin. You do it because you know who God is and you know what He's worth. You felt in your own life how you've overcome sin by putting on the fruit of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. You do it because you know it's not about you. It's not about being seen by men. It's about being seen by God. That's true in what we do in the collection plate. But that's true in what we do outside of those doors, outside of those buildings, every single day. We do it because we're seen by God and we're still seen by God. That's the kind of service that we give. The kind of service that God is going to see and God is going to see the true heart behind and that hasn't changed since the days of Christ. After His physical life ends on this earth, He's sitting in front of the treasury, but now He's sitting in the, the, the holy places of God. He's sitting at the right hand of God, ready to make intercession on our behalf, but He also still sees the lives that we live and the service that we're giving to Him. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the same picture is painted again. This picture of the, of the impoverished giving liberally. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You know that the connections between those two passages are so similar of those who don't have but give, those who aren't greatly blessed but give and give liberally. And again, it's not about the value. It's about the heart behind the action. They looked to God 
and they trust in Him. They know that He sees. They know that He rewards. They know that He provides. And they say, yes, to the world this might seem crazy. To the world it seems crazy to set aside a couple of hours a week to come and worship God. But God sees that. To the world it seems crazy to, to set aside time that you could have been doing whatever you wanted to do to go help someone in need. But God sees that. And we need to trust in Him that what we are giving is going to be seen by Him and that He is going to reward us. He is going to provide for us. We are not truly losing anything. Rather, we are gaining in Him. And I think what all of this boils down to, what Jesus is bringing up here in Mark, is this attitude that was in the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that said, I want to be seen. I want to have the power. I want to be heard. I, I, I. It was all about them. Everything they did was about them. And I think we need to read James chapter 4 to make sure that we don't fall into that same category. The first four verses, he says, where do, wars, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There are many people today, there may even be some in this very room, that can hide their true motives, their true thoughts from the rest of the world. Why do you think Jesus had to say, don't be like the scribes? Because on the outside, the scribes looked beautiful. They looked righteous. They looked like what everyone else needed to try to be. But on the inside, they were white. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead men's bones. You can hide it from the rest of us. You can hide it from me. You may even be able to hide it from yourself, but you can't hide it from God. God sees. So are we living to be seen by Him? Or are we living to be seen by others? Maybe today there are those who are in need of moving from this situation where they are enemies of God to being in a relationship with Him as the King of the kingdom. There are two options that are given us in Scriptures to rectify being an enemy of God. In Romans chapter 5, Paul starts talking about that. In chapter 5, he starts talking about how we have been moved from being an enemy of God to a friend with God through the death of His Son Jesus, who gave His life for us at a time not when we deserved it, but at a time when we were at our utmost wicked. But in chapter 6, he reaches out to these people who have already accepted the blood of Christ, accepted the kingship of Christ, be, knelt their knee down to Him in submission. And he says, do you remember? Do you remember how you came to be a friend of God? Do you remember how you moved from enemy 
to being a member of the kingdom. Speaking to children of God, he reminds them, saying, don't you know that those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We need to accept Jesus into our lives. We need to accept Jesus as authority over our lives. We need to accept Jesus' blood as the solution to the problem of sin in our lives. And to do that, we have to submit ourselves to Him. If He's going to be the King, we have to do what the King requires. In Mark chapter 16, He's going to say that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. What He's telling us is if you want to be a part of My kingdom, this is the way to enter in. I'm the gate. I'm the entrance to the kingdom. And you have to come through Me. But many do that. And then fall back into this friendship with the world. And into worldly actions. And into acting as an enemy of God once again. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we won't be, as John writes in 1 John 1, liars who deceive ourselves saying, I don't have sin. I don't have sin. I haven't committed anything wrong. If we will be honest and confess our sins and not hide them, if we will turn back to God and quit walking in that way and pray for forgiveness, John tells us he's faithful to forgive. And so ultimately, I need to ask myself this question. Who am I? Who am I that God should be faithful to forgive me of my sins? I'll tell you who I am. I am a creation created by an all-powerful God that He loves dearly. And that's who you are too. You are a creation of God and He's watching you and He sees you and He is trying His best to pull you away from sin and away from Satan and away from eternal fire because He longs to have you with Him for eternity. The question is, won't won't we listen to His call today? Won't we come to Him today? Won't we live a life recognizing that He sees us and that we need to be seen by Him? If we can help you begin that life today by, by coming to Him in obedience, or if we can help you to continue that life by returning to Him in repentance, won't you please let it be known right now? Come forward as we stand and as we sing.